Hey folks, I'm Alex Stone. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, we're talking about Friday the 13th, the 1980 horror phenomenon, which turned 40 a few days ago. We'll get into that genre milestone and the whole line of sequels it inspired. Are there any good films in this franchise? Let's find out. Welcome to Film Club. So, Alex, the 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th uh, was just last week. As you mentioned up in the intro, it was May 9th, 1980 that the film was first released. And when I think about the 80s, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch, you know, R-rated slasher movies. My parents were very much against it. They thought it was going to pollute my brain. (laughs) I ended up polluting my own brain later, but that's another story. (laughs) But when I think back on the 80s, it really, like, there the the villains in these franchises became these larger than life cultural figures to the extent where kids were talking about them on school buses and on the playground like I knew who Jason Voorhees was even though I had never seen a Friday the 13th movie what what do you think about like when you think about the 80s and Friday the 13th Alex what was your experience well, I had a similar one in the respect that, um, I mean, they were kind of inescapable in the 80s, which mm-hmm. is very bizarre. It's very bizarre to think that um, basic characters who are basically supernatural serial killers became these pop culture <laughs> icons, you know? I mean, you would see sure. Freddy Krueger from the night, from the adjacent Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, you know, he's on lunchboxes and stuff. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Freddy Krueger became the most of a pop cultural phenomenon, which is a really interesting phenomenon in itself. But yeah, Jason, it's hard to... Jason's just sort of a lot like Michael Myers, and we'll get into how Jason was basically conceived as a ripoff of Michael Myers in the Halloween (laughs) franchise. But those two characters are similar in that there's no real personality to latch on to, you know? It's not like Freddy Krueger where he's introducing uh, segments on the TV series or anything like that. For sure, yeah. I actually grew up watching these films uh, to some extent. Uh, We've talked before on the show about how I could basically watch what I wanted as a child Mm -hmm. and I will leave a discussion of what that's done to me as a person to my therapist (laughs) but uh, (laughs) yes I definitely I I definitely watched most if not all of the Friday the 13th series when I was a child was it scary to you as a child that's the thing not really Okay. But I do think I, I do I do think as with anything, it's a matter of of relativity. Mm. I think I, I always kind of process the Friday the Thirteenth films as uh, as kind of goofy in a way, mm-hmm. in comparison to other stuff. I mean, Freddy scared me as a kid. The The Friday the 13th films, even as a child, you can kind of tell that they're, uh, there's something kind of unreal about them, and the whole thing feels couched in a, in a certain, uh, certain low-budget goofiness that mm-hmm. uh, these, these are not films that, that it's, it's particularly easy to take seriously. Sure, and I think that it's kind of a chicken-egg situation with that where Friday the 13th has sort of become the archetype of a slasher film. Mm -hmm. Like if, uh, let's say, like a comedy sketch show parodies a slasher film, or I've seen a few short films that are parodies of slasher films, and they they don't take, you know, like the the Halloween babysitter route. Usually, parodies of the slasher genre are set at a summer camp with a bunch of horny counselors, and that's Friday the 13th so it's sort of become the the quintessential uh iteration of this particular 80s style of horror i think that has a lot to do with how how monstrously successful the films were too mm. you're right that that friday the 13th was not the first slasher movie there were many before it i mean experts in this sub 
subject, I will say, will um, will debate where the genre begins. Right. Um, a lot of them trace it back to 1960, which is the year that both Psycho and Peeping Tom came out. Right. Both both films that have, I think, uh, a lot of sl- like they're both are kind of proto slashers in in their structure and in that we're following a, a killer with a you know who who's murdering indiscriminately. Um, and then, you know, there are a few films in the years after, um, some Mario Bava stuff, mm-hmm. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, and of course, Halloween. That, yeah. that sort of uh, helps set the template for what Friday the 13th does. I kind of think of the slashers in a similar way of, I think, of punk, like in terms of the history mm-hmm. and the development, and that like, there's like proto-punk. And then there's punk and slashers are kind of the same way where you wouldn't really put a lot of the 60s stuff that's cited as proto isn't really an example of the genre. It's sort of like comparing um, like a garage band to the Ramones. You know, you can see the arc, but it it came out fully formed with the Ramones. That's uh, I think that's a great comparison. Actually, that's that's really strong, particularly with the fact that the slasher slasher movies sort of uh, hit their their height of commercial success and and the, the sheer volume of them coming out in the 1980s yeah Um, around the same time yeah and kind of exploded in the late 70s around the same time that punk became a thing yep totally something about the nihilism of the era i suppose (laughs) (laughs) but i mean friday the 13th is one of the uh, is one of the most successful media franchises honestly um Mm -hmm. they they've produced how many in the original series i mean we're talking we're talking 11 i think yeah, there's 11 when you include Freddy versus Jason. And uh, all of them hits to some degree or another. Profitable, at least, you know, made yeah. on low budgets. Totally. They've obviously, uh, I feel like this series has been a, a merchandising, I mean, we talked about this at the top a little bit, but just the sheer volume of merchandise out there with Jason, with, with Jason Voorhees on it, t-shirts, toys, various other uh, tie-in ephemera you know the uh you you basically like couldn't turn around in the 1980s without seeing that that hockey mask somewhere yeah totally and you know and that continues now to where you know a lot of the actors that were in these movies make a living off the convention circuit now totally so there's still an economy attached which is actually very much in the spirit of how the franchise was originally conceived um so the film was produced and directed by sean s cunningham Mm -hmm. who he he started out he came up with wes craven and he produced the last house on the left which if you haven't seen it it is the uh rape revenge movie very loosely based on ingmar bergman's the virgin spring but it was very shocking when it came out very nasty like grindhouse piece of work and cunningham from there, he tried to get into Hollywood comedies in the late 70s. He tried to parlay this low-budget success into, you know, a string of Hollywood comedies, but they all flopped. Like, an example of one of the movies he produced is called Here Come the Tigers from 1978. You ever heard of that one, Dowd? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a 3.7 on IMDb, so. Ooh, yikes. Yeah, Cunningham was not doing great in Hollywood. And so he decided to, and I'm going to quote an article here. There was an article in Crooked Marquee called Friday the 13th, The Stealing and Selling of a Movie that was published uh, in honor of the anniversary. Uh, It was written by Anya Stanley is uh, the pen name she uses. You can find her at Bookish Plinko on Twitter. She's a really great horror writer. She writes for Fangoria, all the different outlets. But I recommend this article, and a lot of the quotes I'm going to use here are taken from that article. So thank you, Anya. So she writes that Cunningham took every profitable aspect of previous horror hits, threw them in a blender, and hit puree. 
which is exactly <laughs> what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he launched the project with a title and an ad in Variety, sort of a classic exploitation move. Uh, Canon Films was notorious for this in the 80s. They'd come up with the title and the poster and then write a movie based around that. Right, he didn't even know what the movie was going to be at that point, right? No. No. Uh, what he was doing was that once Halloween became a hit, there became a bit of a craze uh, for holiday-themed slasher movies. Mm-hmm. And so there's, in Friday the 13th, you know, it's not really a holiday, but there are a bunch of other movies like this. Like, there's one called April Fool's Day, My Bloody Valentine, yeah. Bloody Birthday. Graduation Day. Yep. Yeah. Special yeah, occasion horror became a thing. In the yep. <laughs> late 70s, early 80s. Partially, I, I will add, though, that as, as much as Halloween inspired these films, Friday the 13th really lit the fuse, mm, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, because of what a huge hit it was. And I think you you had made this point earlier that when, when slasher movie, when you're seeing a parody of slasher movies, you're often seeing a parody of Friday the 13th. I think that has to do with the fact that Friday the 13th in its own way is probably, in many ways, uh, is perhaps more influential than Halloween on mm-hmm. this entire subgenre, even even if it was kind of regurgitating tropes from Halloween and from yeah. other movies. Very shamelessly so. Um, in the article I mentioned, uh, the screenwriter of uh, Friday the 13th, uh, he, in an interview, there's a, there's a seven-hour documentary called Crystal Lake Memories. <laughs> you can watch if you would like a lot of background information on the series. I am perversely interested in watching that, I have to say. I, I've uh, watched... I, I, I've, I've, <laughs> I've seen enough of this series that I feel like I owe it to myself to watch that. <laughs> I, I've seen some of it. It's it's very dedicated. It's me, you know, like, I don't know. It's maybe a little more detail than I need personally, but like. <laughs> That's some OJ Made in America shit. That's a really long <laughs> runtime. People are really into the franchise. They're really into it. And there's a lot of movies with a lot of characters. You can really get into the weeds. You know? I hope but, there's a full hour devoted to Crispin Glover's dancing. Oh, well, we'll so. talk about that. That's possibly my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, but anyway, so in the documentary, um, uh, Victor Miller, he remembers Cunningham calling him. And this is an exact quote. Halloween is making a lot of money at the box office. Why don't we rip it off? (laughs) That's what he said. And he was very upfront about this. He made no pretensions toward making art whatsoever. Uh, Here's another quote, uh, also from the article, uh, from a 1980 interview in Fangoria with Cunningham, where he says, The simple truth is that I need a hit film. So few people survive at all in this business making any kind of film. It's all very nice to talk about cinema, but the truth of the matter is that Friday the 13th seems to me to be a strong commercial property, and I think now is the right time for it. So there is no, you know, you talk about, like, a lot of times these franchises are launched on one really well-made film. And I like to think about Halloween. I think Halloween is just absolutely what, it's one of the best directed movies I've ever seen. Oh, it's seen. a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just uh, the way the Carpenter uses the filmmaking tools in that movie is incredible. But Friday the 13th isn't really like that. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> it's not one great film watching a bunch of subpar sequels. It's just kind of, you know, middle of the road across the board. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really interesting because you're right that a lot of these franchises do start with uh, the impetus of the whole franchise turns out to be a, a, a film that's actually pretty good, you know? I mean, yeah, uh, or as really much as, good in the case or really of good. Halloween, you know? Of Halloween or, or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. I think is also a masterpiece. And mm-hmm. uh, that launched a mediocre franchise as well. 
well, you know, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street as well. The, the original, Wes Craven's original, is, is is a good film. Oh yeah. Often the, the very first film inspired in the series. concept. That's all. Yeah. I mean, that was one of Craven's greatest strength was he could he had a real talent for kind of honing in on a concept and making it. Anyway, <laughs> finding great ideas for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. The Friday the Thirteenth is sort of disreputable from the very start. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, no <laughs> like the first film in the series is not well was not well received. Uh, I seem to recall Siskel and Ebert uh, really going to town. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I yeah. kind of want to talk about so Cunningham and Victor Miller were very self-consciously taking elements of things that had worked in other horror movies and then combining them. Yeah. All the most successful parts of successful horror films and just throwing them into a stew and tr- doing something that they were pretty goddamn sure was going to make a lot of money. They were right. <laughs> but the the ingredient, like, you can watch the original film and pull out specific things that were mm-hmm. taken from other movies. We talked about the holiday peg from Halloween, and also um, there's a shot towards the beginning of the film where we see a kill, a murder, from the killer's point of view, and that's also uh, Cunningham acknowledged that he took that from the beginning of Halloween. Uh, the Psycho, we talked about a hugely influential movie, the Oedipus Complex aspect of Friday the 13th mm-hmm. is taken from that. And the idea of shocking the audience with a murder early in the film, also from Psycho. Yeah, because we do sort of meet a character who appears to be our heroine in the opening few minutes of Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And then and then she gets it before she even makes it to the camp. Yeah, which is, yeah, uh, Hitchcock pioneered that with Psycho. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Oedipal thing, if you want to trace it all the way back, that's coming from Ed Gein, which was a real story that Hitchcock would, that in- yeah. helped inspire the novel. But, uh, and then, so you you mentioned talking about Mario Bava, Alex, as like mm-hmm. a, um, an origin of the slasher genre. You know, the, the kind of stalk and kill formula where a bunch of kids show up at a cabin and then die one by one. That's specifically... Uh, Bay of Blood is the Mario Bava movie where that kind of, you know, is the proto example of that formula. And as we're arguing, Friday the 13th kind of perfected it. But uh, and there's also a specific kill in Friday the 13th that is lifted directly from Bay of Blood. It's the shish kebab kind of concept. Right. Another producer called Steve Miner calls this grand theft cinema. Jump forward (laughs) about 30 seconds if you've never seen Friday the 13th and don't want to know how it ends. Uh, They completely ripped the surprise ending out from Carrie. 100%. They do right down to the right down to the tinkle of like comforting music and yep. uh, yeah, it's a total rip off the ending of Carrie. Completely, yeah. And the producer called it Grand Theft Cinema, so they knew exactly <laughs> what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. Um, <laughs> like I alluded to before, and you said up top, it worked. It worked yeah. to take all the best parts of a bunch of successful movies and combine them into one movie. It's <laughs> not a creative concept necessarily, but business-wise, it's a good move. And the movie uh, was the second highest grossing horror film of 1980 after The Shining. The Shining did mm-hmm. make more money. Uh, speaking of an artistically inspired film. <laughs> 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 but it made $39 million domestically, which was, you know, quite a bit for 1980. Yeah, Alex, you alluded to Siskel and Ebert absolutely fucking hating this movie. (laughs) 
So yeah, I was doing some research uh, a few days ago, just trying to find, uh, just 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 sort of looking up because uh, Siskel and Ebert notoriously hated this franchise and hated slasher movies in general. And I mm-hmm. wanted to read some of Ebert's reviews of the series, uh, especially because I was going through some of them again. And the only one I could find on on his site is uh, his review of the second film. And at the end, there's a note that says this re- <laughs> this review will suffice for the Friday the Thirteenth film of your choice. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which wow. is some amazing shade to just be shade like, you know from what? from beyond the grave. Wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just like this. You know what? You don't need a specific review of these films. <laughs> One will do. But yeah. yeah, they were really, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of, a lot of critics hated these movies and uh, there was a lot of outrage about them. I think critics mm-hmm. were in some respects maybe not intentionally, but they were mirroring some of the, the moral outrage that these films were sure, yeah. inspiring in, in, in politer corners of American pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for another great example, you can look into their response to the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night. That's another great example mm-hmm. of Siskel and Ebert rallying around their hatred of a slasher movie, which also coincided with um, like uh, the Catholic League of Decency protesting the movie and all this stuff because they aired an ad on TV for the slasher movie right. and a bunch of kids saw it anyway um, it seems quaint now doesn't it I mean especially yeah. watching these films that you could possibly think that anybody could really be deeply offended by them but I think it kind of speaks to the fact that culture is so fragmented nowadays and if you don't want to uh, interact with that material you don't have to at all whereas back in the day like ads were played on you know there weren't so many networks and the ad would play a lot and so there was kind of no avoiding it yeah I think it also has to do with the fact that they were so huge though too because mm. I think what it comes down to is that there's tons of stuff that would that would probably give one might say normal Christian outrage <laughs> outrageable Americans it would probably give them like a cerebral hemorrhage if they knew if they even <laughs> knew it existed you know yeah, sure. like I mean like the new French extremity stuff from, from oh god yeah uh, from from ten years ago or whatever stuff like Inside and Martyrs if the av- you know if if the type of people who got up in arms about Friday the Thirteenth knew that those films existed I don't know if they would survive them right uh, the but they were box the office thir- hits so exactly Friday the Thirteenth was being seen in in huge numbers which sort of right. put it on a lot of people's radars and suddenly they're like oh these films about teenagers just being indiscriminately slaughtered I am going to and having sex and doing drugs and having sex that's right (laughs) we talked about Roger Ebert but I wanted to just take a minute to highlight Gene Siskel's review of the movie because not only does he spoil the ending in the very beginning of the review stating outright I'm telling you the ending of the movie so you won't go see it he gave it zero (laughs) stars and he included two he included Included two addresses in the review that you could write to. One, the company that owned the company that produced the film, you could write to them and complain. And he also, he didn't give her exact street address, but he told readers the town that Betsy Palmer, who played Mrs. Voorhees, Jason's mom in the film, he told readers where she lived. So you could write letters to the post office and they could get to her about how despicable the film was. I don't know how I feel about attacking an actress. No, but... I don't know how I feel about any of that. I mean, that's outrageously petty. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you and I see movies that we hate all the time. We don't um, turn it into a personal vendetta against the people who made it. <laughs> he had you know? a personal vendetta against this movie. Yeah. And uh, in the review, he specifically called Cunningham one of the most despicable creatures to ever infect the movie business. 
this. And he added, there is nothing to Friday the 13th other than its sickening attack scenes. Remove them and you're left with an empty movie. Here's the thing. I don't disagree on that last point. The The entire reason <laughs> these movies exist is to watch teenagers get killed. However, mm-hmm. I don't know if I share the moral outrage. Maybe it's just like our culture, maybe I'm desensitized. Maybe our culture, it's but this type of film has become so common that it's not shocking anymore. But yeah. like, he has a point that they're kind of empty vessels for violence, but it doesn't bother me as much as it bothered him, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do wonder if that's partially of both of us growing up in an era when these movies, this this series was already mid-swing by the time either right. of us were, were born. Right. I think this could turn into a much larger discussion of cinematic violence and, mm-hmm. and <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we really need to go necessarily go down that avenue. These films don't offend me either. Mm-hmm. I think that might be partially because a lot of them are kind of inept. Sure. The, there's not a lot in them that I think is genuinely is genuinely ob- upsetting or nasty. I think a lot of them uh, almost play they don't not intentionally most of them not intentionally but a lot of them almost play like comedies where where the 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 big sort of murder set pieces that are arriving are sort of like punchlines. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one that's intentionally a comedy. We'll talk about that later. Totally. Yeah, true. It's a really big subject, but like I guess the question is like does Friday the 13th the original have filmmaking merit? I think there are two really good things about the movie. Mm-hmm. One is the music from Henry Manfredini that like that is honestly like I would compare that to the in Psycho it's a very short snippet of sound but you know exactly what it's from and I think you have to give him a little bit of credit for that very iconic and very evocative and then the other thing, um, you know, and maybe this speaks to what these films are about and, you know, what their purpose is, is that the other, like, notable thing about Friday the 13th is the special effects makeup and the mm-hmm. gore, which is done by Tom Savini, who he was already known by this point for his work on Dawn of the Dead. But mm-hmm. um, it's very, like, his specialty was and is realistic gore. And he told a story last week on The Last Drive-In, the Shudder's weekly uh, d- horror double feature show, where he talked about being a combat photographer in Vietnam and how that showed him what real dead bodies looked like. And wow. so and and so he based all of his models and his work on thing real dead people that he saw and he was talking about how the biggest thing with corpses in film is that when someone is dead their jaw hangs open. And so he always that's like a detail that bothers him when they don't do it correctly in films. So <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty intense stuff, you know. That's that's a dark detail that I, I was not aware of. Uh, it makes yeah. a lot of sense because I think that, I mean, in the years since, obviously, uh, effects have gotten a little bit more sophisticated than they were in the late 70s, early 80s. Although I do think that, and we, we could devote a whole episode to this, but I do think that the art of practical makeup effects were kind of peaked in Savini's heyday because later on we started, people started getting into sort of uh, different different avenues of special effects, you know, and Mm -hmm. digital effects came about and that sort of became a a little bit of a lost art, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And Savini's films, while some of them are, some of his work is a little dated. I mean, in Dawn of the Dead, for example, some of it, uh, some of the the blood is a little orangish, 
you know uh, people have described sure. it as like as like lasagna basically um, <laughs> not all of his effects have, have have held up necessarily in terms of how, how effects look today but i think he had a really good sense of uh anatomically how how the body would react to something like you're getting a machete to the head or your or a shotgun is blowing your head away he has a very famous there's a v- very famous gore effect in maniac that he's responsible for, which is that a head just blows up from a shotgun blast, and he uh, blows even up if... his own head. Oh, that's right, it is him, isn't it? It's him. It's him on the like you can't see the face of the person with the shotgun blowing up the head, and it's Tom Savini blowing up a model of his own head, which is fun. It's <laughs> <That's> very cool. <laughs> uh... <laughs> it's twisted, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he was very inventive, um, especially on something uh, something like this, like Friday the Thirteenth, which does not have the highest budget. Um, it was mm-hmm. definitely a movie made uh, with economical means, but I, I agree that the gore effects in this are absolutely the best thing about the original Friday the Thirteenth. Um, mm-hmm. The the one that always sticks out to me is uh, is Kevin Bacon's death scene. Yeah, a, Kevin a, a Bacon. young Kevin Bacon. He uh, he's laying in bed post sex. He's, ha- he's smoking a cigarette, and a uh, hand comes up, grabs his forehead, and uh, from underneath the bed, an arrow goes through his neck. And what's kind of nifty about the fact is is uh, they, they sort of use clever editing to disguise the fact that uh, it, during one of the shots where we're seeing Cunningham basically accomplishes it with three shots. We get one of the hand on his neck or the hand on his forehead. We then cut to a close up of his neck as the arrow's coming through. And then mm-hmm. we go back to a third shot um, where we can we can see Kevin Bacon's face. He's reacting to it. But the neck and the body are fake. Yeah. Like like he was basically crouching underneath and there's a fake body. But we buy mm-hmm. the effect because of the editing and because of the, the, the sort of continuity it creates. It's it's a really great effect. And I think that um, even if you can look at it now and sort of see the strings, I think it holds up really well for, again, the effect it creates in the film. Yeah. And again, it speaks to, you know, what they were hoping to accomplish in these films, which was kind of an efficient delivery system for, you know, kicks, you know, the sort of like visceral kicks that you get watching a horror movie. For sure. Although a lot of it, uh, as long as we're talking about the original now, I do think that a lot of the filmmaking in it is very inept in the original. The the lighting Um, is pretty bad in places. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an ugly film, although you can sort of make the case that there's a certain charm to its its early 80s, late 70s, early 80s grunginess. It definitely mm-hmm. feels um, like a film that was made outside of Hollywood in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. It feels rough around the edges in a way that's kind of charming. There's a lot of dead air in this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I rewatched it a few days ago. I've probably yeah, seen this movie half a, half a dozen times or something. But there is a, there, there is a lot of dead air in conversations. Uh, at times it feels as though we're seeing takes that where the actor didn't quite know where to stop or, mm-hmm. or in the editing room where they didn't they, they this hasn't been cut with any degree of precision the acting is uh, most of the acting in it's pretty bad i would say a lot of those kids are not particularly good actors i mean all of this has been said about friday the 13th i was just kind of shocked that how um how inept a lot of the original is in terms of pacing and yeah it is odd because they do have some really clever edits in parts of it but then you're right that parts of it like the the the, the assemblage of the film is really haphazard in parts and it feels as though a lot of it feels Feels in terms of the overall pacing too, feels as though the movie is just spinning its wheels. Mm. I mean, I could see how somebody could see this in 1980 and go, "This thing exists only for the set pieces, only for the kills," because everything that's not a kill is so indifferently shot and <laughs> indifferently acted and staged, and a lot of it really does feel explicitly like filler. 
like this thing is limping to feature length you know yeah 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 they know full i mean they know they know what they're there for right i mean (laughs) yeah it's really inept as a mystery too you know like well yeah that's something i kind of wanted to talk about is like it it it, i would not call this like a suspense thriller and that's something Mm -hmm. about all the friday the 13th movies that i've noticed is that like sustained suspense from scene to scene none of them really have it it's a series of set pieces strung together there is no like overarching mystery plot Ever. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, a couple of them, the question of who's doing the killing in the original, obviously, there's there's there there is the question of uh, who who is killing these kids. Right. Um, We we, we don't. Although it's a total cheat, too, by the way, because I guess, again, if you have not seen Friday the 13th, um, you might want to skip ahead here. I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't seen Friday the 13th, but hey, thank you for listening. Our producer hasn't, so he's about to get the ending spoiled. <laughs> he is. As the killer points out in Scream, the the, uh, the killer in the first film is not Jason. Uh, no. It's his mother, uh, Mrs. Voorhees, played by Betsy Palmer. Which and... is why Siskel, you know, re- vindictively directed male in her direction. Yeah. Um, I actually think she's pretty. She's pretty good in the film. That she, it, her, and it, 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 there's a really sharp contrast between the acting of most of the acting in the film and most of these kids. And mm-hmm. when she shows up, because she actually has an idea, maybe has an idea who this character is, and uh, is sort of playing it to the hilt. But the movie cannot really function. At, it's a very dysfunctional as a mystery because mm-hmm. it's not like you could be like you could look at the cast of characters in the first film and go, oh, well, there's a red herring or there's a potential suspect. Exactly. She yeah. shows up in the last 20 minutes of the film and is clearly the killer. Yeah. But the cheat is that, like, we see shots of hands and it's clearly, like, a hairy man's hand, you know? Like a giant <laughs> hairy man hand. Um, so the movie the movie cheats in that respect. Yeah, I guess what I mean when I say that I don't really think of it as a mystery is that it's not like there's one character who's like, who's killing all of my friends? The, right. cou- the They're not even camp counselors. They're preparing a camp to open. There's no campers there. They're all pretty unaware of each other's deaths throughout because they're all split up to go have sex about halfway through. And that becomes part of the formula of the series too and uh, something that I think is interesting is that uh, a few of the films have played with this a little bit more is that the basic formula is that none of the characters know this is going on and Mm -hmm. the movie kind of shifts gears at the moment that our main character, usually a woman, the final girl, when our main character discovers that this is happening. Like when when she finds the bodies and Mm -hmm. that usually kicks off like the last third of the movie because yeah yeah the exciting part particularly in part two which we'll talk about i think that movie has a really good ending i would agree uh, one of the things I find kind of interesting about the original Friday the 13th is that uh, it is very much walking in John Carpenter's footsteps, the mm-hmm. original Halloween. It's very much trying to be sort of, it, it is very much an imitation of Halloween, but it's it's an imitation made by people who do not have the uh, the craft of John Carpenter or the mm. understanding of what he's doing necessarily. Like a lot of the dead air that we talk about, the early scenes where, no, where sort of nothing is happening and Jason is stalking them feels like a very, to me, like a very poor imitation of what Carpenter does in that masterful first hour of Halloween where Michael Myers is stalking them around the streets of Haddonfield and in that sequence in those sequences we're getting a real sense of the space and who the characters are in Friday the 13th it feels like the only thing that they really quite grasped about it was oh well Jason doesn't kill people immediately. Like, we have to, like, <laughs> put that off. So it feels like they, they watched Halloween, they saw that, but they didn't quite understand its function. 
Yeah, and something also that is in Halloween that I kind of talked about that I think is missing from Friday the 13th is in the character of Lori. Lori knows something is going on with her friends Mm -hmm. before uh, she finally comes face to face with Michael Myers. And she kind of serves the role of the detective in that film that you don't really have in Friday the 13th. Totally. Well, let's get into the series a little bit. Like you were saying, the general stock and slash formula is consistent throughout. Um, they don't meddle with the formula too much. So they'll do different variations on the theme. But uh, the one thing, but some things do evolve. Like, uh, for example, you alluded to uh, the killer in the first film. It's Mrs. Voorhees. In the second one, it is Jason. Uh, I, I, that's not even really a spoiler. But he doesn't wear the hockey mask. The hockey mm-hmm. mask doesn't come in until the third part. And so, and it's interesting because the the ripoff factor from Halloween kind of evolves over the course yeah. of the films to where it ends up being a hulking man in a utility jumpsuit and a mask with supernatural <laughs> strength, like Michael like, Myers. It, it, it like gets closer to Michael Myers as yes. the series goes on. With yeah. every film, he become Jason becomes more like Michael Myers. Yeah. I actually think his look with the in the second film he's wearing this burlap bag over his head mm-hmm. with a single eye hole cut out. I actually think that's a scarier look than the, than the hockey mask. The hockey mask yeah. obviously became really iconic, but I actually find the burlap sack look to be scarier personally. Yeah. Well, and you know, for Jason is you know, sort of the protagonist of the series, the thing that remains consistent throughout the series, mm-hmm. the thing that evolves throughout the series, and the actors who played Jason are better known than some of the you know some of the people that played the victims like uh you know some some famous names have done time in the friday the 13th Mm -hmm. series you know we talked about kevin bacon and crispin glover and Corey feldman was in a couple friday the 13th movies um but probably the most famous name associated with the series is kane hodder who played jason but he didn't start playing jason until the seventh film right yeah it's really bizarre that he has become known as the sort of uh the quintessential jason Mm -hmm. um not just because he he took he took on the role so late in the game but because he also was jason in some of the least popular entries in the series Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like fans don't especially like the films that kane hodder plays jason in right yeah but he was like the starring role by the time you get to um jason x he gets top billing Right. <laughs> yeah, because Jason is, is the protagonist of the series. <laughs> he is. I mean, the, the series has played a little bit with. There's like a little. There's a little mini arc uh, through the middle of it, through the fourth, the fourth to the sixth entries, where mm-hmm. uh, our main character is. You could argue that the main character becomes Tommy Jarvis. He's this sort of monster mask loving kid who's introduced in the fourth film and we but see him isn't grow that another up. Halloween ripoff though because like Halloween 4 and 5 had Jamie also yes. had a kid being... it definitely is yeah <laughs> he's also played by three different actors which is very bizarre and and the conception of him in the uh, in the fifth film is a lot different than the conception of him in the sixth he like he like seems like he's like an introverted, like a haunted introverted dork almost in the fifth one, and mm-hmm. then the sixth one he's like this, he's like this brooding hunk basically. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's a hunk in the yeah. sixth one. Well, yeah. let's let's just run him down. Um, mm-hmm. Another piece that I want to give a shout out to is by Noel Murray, who still writes for the site. He wrote a piece. It's 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 uh, he's you know he's having a little fun with it. It's not a very serious piece, but it's called Year by Year with Friday the Thirteenth. He wrote it back in. 2007 for AV Club. It kind of goes year by year through the films and kind of points out different details about them that helps you keep the 
them all straight. And for me, I kind of think of them, <laughs> the way I wrote it down in my notes is sort of like Friends episodes where it's like the one with this, the one where they rip off Carrie, the one where... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, like the characters are largely interchangeable. Each of the films will have a different hook and that's basically the best way to keep them all straight. Like, uh, so Friday the 13th part two, this one I remember the most because I think the ending of this is great. I love the final act of Friday the 13th part two. If you've never seen it, it's um, sort of a the final girl confronts Jason and uh, she plays with the Oedipal complex a little bit in a way that's really gross and pretty fun. <laughs> Part two is actually a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I, I, think, I think part two is where the series, um, for one thing, there is a, no offense to, to Cunningham, but there is an enormous uptick, I think, in the quality of the filmmaking in the second mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. That's a relative distinction. No, I, think, I don't think anybody of like John Carpenter's talent ever made one of these, t- to be honest. But I do think that the second one shows a basic understanding of suspense in a way that the original does not. Sure. Uh, I think there's, there's some inventive staging here and there. I, there's a there's a shot in the second one. Um, it's almost from the perspective of the knife that that plays with uh, that basically plays with um, with rack focus. That's pretty pretty neat. And the second, I mean, the second one basically just com- just completely rehashes the. I mean, it actually literally rehashes the plot of the first film in that mm-hmm. there is a very a unnecessarily long recap of the first movie. <laughs> it's the really long. If you watch them back to back, you're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you're like, I just saw this, you know. <laughs> and they spoil the ending too of the first totally. one. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because I think if you were probably if you were seeing Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, you had probably seen the original, and it only Maybe. came out it came out like a year earlier. These things were like Marvel movies; they came out like for a little while. They were coming out at, like at the beginning of May every year. You know, mm-hmm. they just like staked out that spot on the calendar. I mean, it's possible that maybe you missed the first one, but because it was a big hit, you had heard about it. That's possible. Yeah, I suppose it's possible. But also, uh, it's a Friday the 13th movie. The plot is not all that important. <laughs> you don't need to give us all that. But in the second one, you know, uh, J- J- Jason, the, 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 the drowned boy, the boy who, dr- who supposedly drowned in the lake years earlier, whose mother went on this rampage in the first film. Uh, he is now the killer. He's wearing he's wearing the burlap sack, sack over his head, and he's kind of going through and and picking off uh, a new group of, of, of counselors. You know, I believe already... they're just kids at a cabin. They're across the lake. Oh, somewhere. you're right. They're not counselors, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the first few films he just sort he, his his radius of killing sort of grows. He just he's like moving further and further out from. It's like different Crystal sides lake. of the lake. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like the second one because, I mean, I do think that it's the one where a lot of the elements of this series uh, mm-hmm. solidified. I, I also think it's one where a lot of the kids, uh, a lot of our victims are actually fairly likable, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which does make a difference. Um, it really I mean, does. You know, I mean, a lot of these, I think the, the sort of general notion about slasher movies, I, I think it's a little bit of a cliche to say that these movies make us want, want to root for the killer. Um, no, I, don't, I mean. I, I don't really think that's always true necessarily. I think that no. you want to spend time with some of these characters uh, I mean and I think I think the best movie I think the best horror movies are ones that actually engender some real some real feelings of of sympathy empathy compassion for the characters who are being killed that that sort of intensifies the suspense of their predicament and, and yeah. also I don't recall the exact year it was published but Carol J Clover wrote a pretty major work in terms of feminist horror studies called men women and chainsaws which yeah. very effectively argues that the point of identification in these films is not the killer it is the final girl 
Right. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That uh, that's a that's a major piece of writing that I would yeah. if you are at all interested in slasher movies, I would seek that out. It's a really it's, interesting piece of it's writing. It's pretty academic, but it's very effectively argued, and it does kind of shift the perspective away from the Gene Siskel style. We're just watching girls get murdered thing. It has a lot to say about like identification and empathy and gaze. Totally. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think the second one just is sort of the formula uh, firing on all cylinders that had not gotten. It had not gotten that stale at that point. Uh, the movie sort of knows what it's doing with with the set pieces, which are not super elaborate, but uh, some of them are a little inventive. And uh, it just feels to me sort of like a platonic ideal of a Friday the 13th movie. Yeah, um, I have this sort of cockamamie theory that holds for me, at least, that the, the even-numbered Friday the 13th movies are good and the odd-numbered ones are bad. Oh, it's like the Star Trek series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. The same theory about Star Trek, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. One more thing about the second film. It, it does sort of have the odds on favorite for best final girl. I, f- I feel like people, mm-hmm. Amy Steele's character in mm-hmm. uh, in the second film, I think is generally the, 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 the fan base tends to think of her as maybe the best final girl the, of yeah. the franchise. And she's awesome. And the way that she... Yeah. Uh, the way that she interacts with Jason when they finally come face to face, the ending that I was talking about earlier, I think is a big part of that. Yeah. So part three, uh, this one, the formula is continuing to come together. You have the additional element of the mask. Um, But overall, uh, this one doesn't really do it for me. It's pretty like, you know, if you're going to be a completist, watch it. But it's it's not the best in the series, in my opinion. It's kind of forgettable. I agree. I mean, uh, you said that you've been calling these the one with (laughs) this one to me strikes is the one with the bar. Barn. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a lot of action around this barn. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's the only, but that, honestly, I think that's one of the only memorable things about it. Um, mm-hmm. it the film was originally released in 3D. Oh, so yeah, that's it, a memorable thing. It's the one with the 3D. There you go. Yep, yep. <laughs> there is some fun stuff with this was during the early 80s 3D boom, the brief revival of, of 3D in the 80s. And there is some fun stuff if you watch it today where you can tell what was, you know, I mean, obviously nobody can really watch it in 3D today, but you can tell which shots were intended to be viewed in 3D. Mm-hmm. There's a shot where Jason shoots a woman in the water with a with a harpoon gun and the harpoon comes right at the camera. There's an effect where an eye pops out of the socket, which was clearly intended to be to be seen in 3D. And but doesn't that, that guy play with a yo-yo at one point? Yes, he does. It's, very, it's like very, <laughs> very, very obvious that they're just doing that to play with the 3D. Yeah. Um, but other than that element, the, I mean, the kills are kind of... The kills are kind of uninspired. I feel like in the third one, I, I think that the 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 two groups that were it's like it's in in the third one, it's like two competing groups. There's like these um, there's like these greaser kids mm-hmm. um, who are like picking on the uh, on this this group of otherwise like nice teenagers basically, and the, both those groups are be, are basically being uh, knocked off by Jason. There's just not a lot that's super memorable about the third one. Yeah, honestly, if I had seen the third one in um, in the year that it came out, in the early 80s, I think I would have assumed that this franchise was on its last legs. <laughs> well, not they, so much. <laughs> <laughs> they um, make a gesture towards such at, in part four, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, called the final chapter. It certainly was not. This is one of my favorite Friday the 13th, part four, because it speaks to something that you were talking about with part two. I really like the characters in this movie. Yeah. I find the characters very, like, endearing. And it, this is another one where it's not camp it's a bunch of kids partying at a cabin and saying oh did you hear there was a bunch of murders at a summer camp mm-hmm. along the lake but they're not actually at the camp they're at a cabin partying and this has my favorite character in all of Friday the 13th which is Crispin Glover as dead fuck 
He's my favorite character in all of it. He's very memorable. You know, talk I'm about sad the when he gets it. Actually. Me too. Yeah, he's that's like, the thing. He's, He's a nice guy, you know, like he's not trying to be a sleaze, you know, he goes to the cabin and he meets the other misfit girl and they're, you know, they, they hook up and he's and they're both like, wow, this is so great. And then, you know, they're just kind of relatively innocent kids exploring. They're not these like cynical, you know, I don't know, sex crazed kids you see in the other ones they're like more realistic teenagers and then then jason has to get them <laughs> jason has to get them um, <laughs> he that's what these to. movies are about <laughs> it's his job mm-hmm. yeah i mean but i agree uh, and i actually think that the framework of the fourth one is kind of charming um because a lot of the movie takes place against the backdrop of this of this house party and there's all this i mean you could you could argue that all the films sort of take place during a house party but this one mm-hmm. makes it very explicit that um it's a group of people who don't know each other that well who are getting together and some of them are trying to get laid some of them are just you know are just feeling things out as teenagers yeah and that element of social awkwardness is in the fourth one that i think actually gives those scenes we talked about how the first one the only thing that works in the first one is the kill scenes mm-hmm. I, and, and that a lot of the stuff the actual interactions between the characters feels like total filler in the fourth one i think that the stuff where the characters are interacting is actually pretty charming <laughs> it really is because of the social awkwardness which makes them feel like real teenagers in some part yeah. of the 13 movies including the first ones the characters are supposed to be like 17 18 but they act like they're 25 these kids act like actual teenagers where they're really kind of nervous about having sex you know they're not they're not cynical about it yet Totally. The uh, two other things that the fourth one has going for it is that Tom Savini came back to the franchise mm-hmm. to do the special effects. There are some very good kills in this one. In terms very of good, great effects. effects in this movie. Yep. Yep. And uh, the other thing is Corey Feldman uh, plays Tommy yep. Jarvis, the, the the little kid. I think he's the first like little kid basically in this franchise. He is. Yep. And that character would come back in a couple more entries going forward. Yeah, and Tommy Jarvis is also very charming in this film because they show him as this kind of monster kid who makes monster masks. And Yeah, I think he's a little bit of a surrogate for the audience in some mm-hmm. respects, for like the horror oh, fans time. in the audience, you know. And and even, I mean, even acknowledging that there were kids seeing these movies, honestly, in in the 80s, I think that like that character felt like a direct sort of a, 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 like, we see you, you know. <laughs> we see horror <laughs> yeah. kids in the audience, we see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And then Tommy comes back in part five but I'm not really a big fan of part five. Part five is where it feels like the character of Tommy feels more like they were modeling it off of Jamie in the Halloween movies uh, yeah. with him being in the institution and everything that uh, it, it's not as uh, endearing or inspired as part four. The fifth one has a strong has a strong foundation that the movie mm-hmm. does nothing with but I feel like the <laughs> idea of Tommy Jarvis he's going to this he's going to this basically this halfway house that's uh, that, that's in the woods it's basically like a camp um, and he's with these other troubled kids that's a strong setup I think sure. honestly but the problem with the film is that uh, it has no there is no center to the film like Tommy is marginally the main character but he also has to double because this is the first film that they killed Jason at the end of four mm-hmm. so this is the first film after that that happened and we are meant to in this in the sense that the first one is sort of an accidental mystery in some ways it sort of is a half-assed one this yeah. one really wants to be a whodunit it really mm-hmm. wants us to look at this cast of crazy characters and wonder who among them is doing the killing is jason back or is it one of them so but what that does though is that tommy has to basically uh disappear for long stretches of the movie because he's 
he's also a suspect. So mm-hmm. we have to like, so because so you'll get scenes of, you'll get these little vignettes with a with all these crazy characters. And this has to be the craziest cast of characters in the fifth one. <laughs> yeah. There's like this weird redneck family in the, in the woods and just a whole bunch of, of really over the top characters getting killed by Jason in this one. <laughs> and I think the idea is that we're supposed to look at all these and think that some of them could be the killer, but that never really comes across. If you don't want the fifth movie spoiled, please skip ahead again yeah. a few seconds but it's not jason in the fifth one mm. he uh, yeah it's the father of so there's a scene early in the film where one of the kids at the halfway house kills one of the other kids with an axe for offering him a candy bar it's a very but there's there's so many scenes in this movie that make no damn sense but he basically kills this kid with an axe early in the film and we find out later on that the killer is actually the kid's father and uh, he's been going around and he's actually trying to capitalize on fear of of Jason to make people believe that that Jason is responsible because it's not act- it's not actually Jason in the fifth one he's uh, it's one of the two films in the franchise where Jason is not the killer but i think through a lot of it we're meant to believe that it's that it's Tommy yeah well, in part six, they come back around. Um, this one is my personal favorite in the franchise, uh, directed okay. by Tommy McLaughlin. They go full camp in part six. Um, this is one of the, it's more rare than you would think that there are actually campers at the camp in a Friday mm-hmm. the 13th movie. In part six, you have the full counselors, campers, whole thing, but they take a more comedic route to it. Tommy Jarvis is back. Uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, Alex. He's in his third incarnation as a brooding teenage hunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the six this one, um, I mean, you say that it's it's more comic. I would say it's almost a parody. Oh, sure, I mean, yeah. There is a lot of winking humor in the sixth one. There's uh, there's a scene where uh, so Jason's body has been dug up, and there's a scene of the uh, the grave digger is looking at the body, and he kind of looks at the camera and says, "Some people have a funny idea of entertainment." <laughs> and there's like tons <laughs> of stuff like that. They're like one of the couples who gets killed. One of them says, "I've seen enough horror movies to know that a guy in a mask is never friendly." There's a lot of winking uh there's even a james bond joke mm-hmm. <laughs> like like the credits start with a james bond joke where jason walks you know the, the classic shot of bond yeah, walking into, into the, the viewfinder the, the sort of viewfinder yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And turning and shooting <laughs> the, the, jason does that here and throws a blade at the screen <laughs> um so, so uh, some of it's dopey but uh, yeah i i, I, I think sort it's of, really uh, fun it is uh and it definitely feels like one that was made for people who had seen all these other films and at this point were ready to laugh a little bit at the formula mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's better made than a lot of the other ones. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's more going on uh, directorially in this one behind the camera. Yeah. Like the opening sequence where, so Tommy goes with his, with a friend of his to go like basically make sure that Jason is dead and they dig up the grave. There's something almost like a universal monster movie about the, that mm-hmm. opening sequence. They like dig it up and there's lightning and, and. I love the lightning. It's so fun. Yeah. 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 So the sixth one is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I like that one. Go. And it's got a great, uh, a very fun um, theme song, too. He's back. The man behind the mask. I do love a good 80s metal uh, slasher movie theme song. How do you think it compares to Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter? (laughs) I don't know. I think I might like this one a little better. Okay, cool. (laughs) 
Well, in uh, part seven, we kind of, unfortunately, the uh, winking parody tone of part six did not last. And by part seven, it's fully back to sort of a miserable slog through murder. Part seven is notable for uh, bringing in the spirit of the original, ripping off Carrie and having a uh, telekinetic teenage girl as the final girl. Yeah, people kind of, the the unofficial subtitle of this one is Jason versus Carrie, which is basically its premise. But it's remarkable how much having, how little having a telekinetic lead character actually changes the Friday the 13th formula. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of one of the things I find dissatisfying about it is they don't do a whole lot with the carry concept. Very little. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, th- there's a final battle that's a little bit more elaborate than than usual. The character is actually kind of holding her own against Jason because of her powers. Otherwise, though, it really just plays like a like like the movie is playing the, the hits of Friday mm-hmm. the 13th and it's it's a lot tamer than earlier ones um, yeah it's my understanding that the MPAA was was really really cracking down on this series as the years went on I mean it, it always even the first two entries in, in the series really had to struggle to get our ratings there's a lot there's a lot of gore cut from them in order to mm-hmm. come in under, under the wire but I think later in the series they were just kind of engineering them to not have that trouble and the seventh one is just so low on ostensibly what people come to these movies for which is gore yeah and you yeah, so there's a lot of reasons why that one feels very paint by numbers. And then, I mean, at this point, by uh, like we were saying, part seven is where Kane Hodder comes in and also where um, things start to get a little bit rough. <laughs> yeah. Things get pretty dire after this point in the series. Uh, part eight, Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. He does not take very much of Manhattan, which is disappointing <laughs> because uh, mostly it takes place on a boat. A bunch of kids partying on a boat. Jason's picking them off one by one, etc., etc. And then at the end, they finally get to Manhattan and there is a pretty fun scene where Jason's walking through Times Square and some kids yell at him and I enjoy that scene, but I would have liked it much better if there had been more Manhattan in Jason. Well, for sure. And and eight is, to me, eight might be the... The low point? The the bottom of the barrel for this franchise. Oh, it's, wow. it's tough to say. The one the one after eight is really bad, too. But, yeah, uh... I think Jason Goes to Hell is the worst one. <laughs> well, but the thing about eight is that there are, there are no very inventive kills in it. Right. Um, the characters are all forgettable. The title is a lie. Most of it takes place on a boring boat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a certain sadism to the, to, to, the, to the eighth film that I find actually for the first time maybe watching this film i actually do am a little bit grossed out by 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 Mm. by the kills and it's not because they're especially gory but it's like the eighth one is really really lingers on people just like they're like long extended sequences of characters just begging for their lives before jason kills them and jason just holding the blade above his head for an interminable length of time Mm -hmm. before he finally kills them i think it spoils a little bit of the fun of this series where i do think the best kills are the ones that sort of arrive like these almost like these punch lines like oh one minute you're alive and the next minute there's a blade through your neck you know yeah yeah and and those yeah yeah, it, it does feel a little bit, the efficiency is a little less sadistic. Yeah, the I, I, I dig what you're saying. Eight does have the New York sequence going for it, though. I do think <laughs> it, that is pretty fun, where Jason's walking around and just running fun. into these very 1980s caricatures of New York life. You know? Not even, like, the, there's, like, this gang of juvenile delinquents who are like, hey, 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 Adam, and they seem like they're from the 50s. They're, like, 80s to <laughs> 50s. I would kids. say, like, the Warriors. They're, they're like, straight out of the yeah. Warriors or something. Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, I think the worst one in this series is uh, part nine, Jason Goes to Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super poorly lit. A friend of mine, uh, on I believe it was on Twitter, said that it has the production values of a pornographic film, which I agree. It's <laughs> very poorly lit at the beginning, kind of d- doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, fun fact, um, the reason that Friday the 13th does n- is not in the title of um, parts uh, 9, 10, or 11 is because New Line Cinema's the rights to the characters but not the title so that's where the that's why it's just jason instead of friday the 13th um yeah because that was when the franchise moved over from paramount to new line mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally jason goes to hell is not is not a strong piece of filmmaking i um, really don't like it like there's like redeemable qualities in a lot of these i think even the ones that are kind of forgettable like uh part seven i was kind of down on it a few minutes ago but it has my favorite kill of the series but this one there's just like really nothing like there's nothing to hang on to i don't think i think it's the worst one well so it uh the eighth or, or, sorry, the, the ninth one, Jason Goes to Hell, does uh, it does attempt to tweak the formula a little bit, which I guess I abstractly appreciate. I don't think yeah. that the way that they do it is very good, but the movie opens with maybe its most clever touch, which is, is this kind of bait and switch where uh, we're following this young woman and she goes and she's taking a shower. She's clearly at a cabin somewhere. Very typical Friday the 13th. But it looks so bad. It like... does look bad. <laughs> but it's revealed that she is actually a, she's like a federal agent basically they're setting Jason up and Jason just gets blown away by a whole task force (laughs) what happens from there is that basically Jason Jason is dead but his spirit his like heart is still alive and he starts possessing people it's a lot like the hidden so uh, the killer is basically not Jason through most of the film it's people Jason is possessing this is a extremely boring movie yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, like yeah. when you describe the plot, it sounds pretty cool, but it's it's actually really boring. And we don't even get one shot of hell, which really pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> so there there is there is one there is one really uh, gnarly gore effect in it, at least in the mm-hmm. unrated version. That it was one of the only times I've ever watched one of these films and actually been a little bit taken aback by mm-hmm. the violence mm-hmm. and a little bit like holy shit that was that was a little gnarly there's there's the a effects sex had scene developed by this point right they had yeah. yeah i mean the effects are a little bit more sophisticated mm-hmm. and there's a sex scene basically and when the woman climaxes jason like shoves a, a spear through her and then just like halves her basically um, it's not in the R-rated cut the R-rated cut cuts away before we see the halving but it's uh, it's a pretty gross and intense effect and I will say that that is one of the only things that, that Jason Goes to Hell has going for it <laughs> yeah it is funny you know when you think about it it's sort of like how um, how the exorcist is actually the best friend that the Catholic Church ever had you know increasing belief in demons and stuff like that yeah. the Friday the 13th movies it's it's presented in this really depraved way, but the if you have sex, you're going to die moral is actually pretty consistent with Catholic <laughs> ideology. It really is. It's like you guys know that these movies sort of they sort of reflect some of your ideas about the world, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean the way they go about it is you know different. They use a different methodology, but the point is yeah, the yeah. same. <laughs> Can I say two more things about Jason Goes to Hell? I, I promise I don't want to focus too much longer on this very bad movie. That's, that's okay. That's okay. One of the worst of the series, certainly. I will say that, number one, I do enjoy the presence of Stephen Williams. He, You, you and I are both watching, uh, are, have been re-watching The X-Files. Mm-hmm. He plays X on The X-Files. Mm-hmm. In this, he plays like a bounty hunter character who's obsessed with Jason. Um, and I do sort of it's enjoy his intensity. Character. Such a weird character. This is a way more serious film than the other ones in some respects. And that is 
not a great fit for it, <laughs> in my opinion. The other thing is that this this introduces a lot of really needless mythology, yeah. and uh, it reminds I, that's me one actually. Of the I don't like about it. Right. Um. It, it really we really do not need that element in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. It, it actually reminds me a lot of the sixth Halloween film, The Curse of mm-hmm. Michael Myers, where it's oh, like yeah, we don't yeah, yeah. need all this extra stuff. Like he's he's a killer. He drowned. That's all you like. It you know it's you don't need more. Don't overthink it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because Anya Stanley, the writer who I mentioned up top, who wrote that great article about the original Friday the 13th, she is a big Cult of Thorn defender. <laughs> she Really? She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she'll go to the mat for it every time. It's very fun. Why? <laughs> Ask her. She'll tell you. All right. I will. <laughs> um, well, let's move on. Uh, you want to talk about fun cameos. Jason X has a very fun cameo from David Cronenberg. That's right. Yes, the director of Scanners and The Fly and all those body horror films we love. He shows up at the beginning of Jason X. Um, In keeping with my theory, this one is like part eight kind of messes up my theory a little bit. But Jason X is so goofy and so of its time. There's there's something very early 2000s about setting it aboard a spaceship. Like sci-fi horror was kind of having cheap, low budget sci-fi horror kind of had a moment in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this one is very of that of that ilk and you talk about memorable kills there's one in this film where Jason um, the whole premise is very ridiculous of course it's that it is the year I think it's like 2455 or something like that and um, this group of scientists finds Jason Voorhees frozen in carbon because they were studying him because he couldn't die back in the 20th century they find him in stasis and they thaw him and he starts being Jason Voorhees again Um, but there's one kill in this movie uh, where Jason sticks a woman's head into some sort of cryogenic freezing fluid, pulls her head out, and then smashes it into bits on a counter, which is... It's a good one. It's a good one. (laughs) It's a good one. I do do like that kill, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Jason X, for one, I will say that uh, he's not the first slasher to go to space. Oh no, not not by any means. No. Yeah, we had seen Lepre- at that point both Leprechaun and Pinhead had gone to space mm-hmm. <laughs> so long Jason- before this movie too. Yeah, totally. But I would say on a whole, uh, Jason X is. I do sort of like the the goofier tone of it. It it, it, do- it feels self aware in a less uh, in a less obvious way necessarily than the sixth one, which I think is very constantly winking at the audience. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. the tenth one is more. It isn't doing quite as much. It doesn't sidle up to the fourth wall quite as much. Sure. But it does seem to understand its place as the, you know, as the 10th film in this franchise. Yes, it knows full well not to take itself too seriously. Totally. I will say that, uh, and this is something in general, we're talking about these movies all in succession. I don't recommend watching, I know people do this sometimes, I have friends who will do this like periodically, will watch, like marathon this whole series. And Mm -hmm. it does not benefit these films because so many of them are are rather uh, formulaic and, and with interchangeable characters. I think if you were to watch a whole day of Friday the 13th movies and then get to Jason X, I think you'd have a little bit less fun with it because honestly, in terms of what actually, in terms of the kills and in terms of the characters, it's it's pretty, it's like pretty, like, like while the sci-fi element gives it the veneer of being something new, this is in some ways, I think, a, a typical Friday the 13th movie. Oh yeah, none of them really stray that far from the original formula. They just add no. these different touches like we've been mm-hmm. talking about. In terms of that, I... Um, <laughs> I have a friend who watched every single one 
of these movies back to back. He stayed up almost 24 hours. Um, <laughs> said he felt completely crazy by the end. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. But uh, I watched uh, four or five and six in succession not too mm-hmm. long ago. And that length is fun. But I think it is more fun to watch them in order and kind of watch as it develops over time. Because, um, like I said, I just watched some of them fairly recently. And so I went back and kind of filled in ones that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I don't recommend watching them out of order. Then it, then it, you don't even really have the kind of like momentum of moving forward in styles and hairstyles yeah. and gore effects. It's, it's, it's really, it's kind of a slog to catch up on them out of order. Yeah. Well, so after Jason X, New Line was finally able to get off the ground, something that they had been planning. I think one of the reasons they even bought Jason in the first place, and uh, it's teased at the end of Jason Goes to Hell. It's another mm-hmm. thing we can mention about that bad movie. There's so much to say about that really bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> but at least in terms of the standard continuity, the last, currently the last Friday the 13th film is Freddy vs. Jason, yes. where uh, New Line combines its two slasher superstars. I think this movie's a lot of fun. I mean, I will say that it's I dated. Assu- it's very dated. It is. There's a racist joke in it, so that's there not is. great. There is. I don't don't love it. Yeah, and there's some really dumb touches in it. There's there's a terrible new metal soundtrack. There is there's a weird. A ve- I've always been fascinated by this because I just think it's so bizarre. There is a character who is basically Jay of of Jay and Silent Bob, mm-hmm. not played by Jason Mewes, but clearly is modeled on him. Mm-hmm. Behaves exa- looks looks and behaves exactly like him. I don't know what the fuck he's doing in this movie. Movie, but a very strange character. But beyond all that, I you know I remember seeing this in theaters. We had talked actually about in our in our movie theater episode about fun movie theater experiences. And I think I brought this one up because it was so um, yeah, you it did. was such it was just such a hooting and hollering good time. You know, you yeah. could see that the audience was divided. The, the it was like two fandoms coming together, and it was so good natured, and everybody was like rooting for one or the other. What I like about Freddy vs. Jason is that it does attempt to combine not just like the characters but kind of the tone and the conventions of two different franchises mm-hmm. so it's sort of fun to watch the movie gear shift occasionally between this is a freddy moment to this is a jason moment because mm-hmm. they are very different franchises in their own way oh definitely yeah for sure the thing uh you talked about movie theater experiences um last october i uh hosted the midnight shift at there's a 24-hour horror marathon in chicago at the music box theater um we had the general manager on a few weeks ago and uh, one of the films they showed in late night was freddy versus jason and it Mm -hmm. was a good choice for late night because it's one of those movies where the dialogue scenes are pretty quiet but then whenever freddy or jason shows up the music gets really loud so uh, if you had fallen asleep you would wake up like ah, for, for all of the um, like that. the good parts <laughs> there's some good there's some good kills in in freddy versus jason too I, I i enjoy the um the kill where the guy gets killed on the bed and then basically just folded inward mm-hmm. like jason just folds the like folds him in half like origami <laughs> Mm-hmm. There's also a, a scene where a kid wakes up from having a nightmare about Freddy and his dad is sitting next to him and his dad's head just slips off because Jason has, has cut it off, basically. <laughs> so I, have a, I have a hard time getting over the racist joke, though. I just really yeah. like when we watched it last October, the whole theater was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to get over in, in retrospect. I don't know, because like it, it's the kind of it's the kind of moment, you know, I don't know. I, I can't think of another moment like that in the series that's just so like oh my god like ugh. yeah yeah i mean it's about five seconds maybe just fast forward i don't know <laughs> yeah 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 and it's kelly Rowland from uh destiny's 
Freddy's child, who is the target of that particular comment totally. from Freddy Krueger. Yep. Um, but the I will say for me, the thing that is the source of the most eternal fascination about Freddy versus Jason is uh, there's a fu- there's a feature on the DVD where you could jump straight to the kills and <laughs> just skip over all the plot that I just find <laughs> fascinating because they they are finally giving up the pretense of any sort of plot. They're just like, yeah. forget it. Just skip to the good parts. <laughs> you know? Which to me is a little ironic because I actually feel in general that Freddy versus Jason is one that it least attempts to actually make you give a shit about the characters i think that's partially a function of the fact that it was made much later than the other ones and Mm -hmm. and just suggests sort of shifting trends and what people want from horror movies but to me it feels like some thought was actually put into the story in this one maybe too much thought was put into the story there's a whole motivation (laughs) for for why freddy is doing this and so it's funny to me that that was the one where they introduced that because in some respects you can actually see the film wanting you to give a shit about the stuff that happens between the kills yeah i wonder how the screenwriter felt about that particular feature I'd be annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, and then finally, the uh, last we've seen of the Friday the 13th franchise on the big screen was there was a remake in 2009. That's right. Platinum Dunes, which also did remakes of... Uh, it's, it's Michael Bay's company, uh, did did remakes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Amityville Horror, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm a little bit of a Platinum Dunes apologist. Oh, yeah? That's one of my least popular opinions, honestly, <laughs> is, that, is that those films are perfectly... Are perfectly fine people seem to have a real like really object to them how slick they are yeah particularly i mean with the first one the texas chainsaw massacre remake it's so slick as compared to the original i will say yeah. the same cinematographer well, i mean though, that's part of the appeal of those originals for even, sure it is but even do the you want the same thing benefits from the you know like as uh, aesthetics become inherently like to me like the like certain periods just the just the, the way they've aged make them aesthetically appealing that's how i feel about the late 70s early 80s and yeah. so yeah the slickness of it it's just like what's the point anyway well but we already have those earlier films i would argue um if you're gonna i don't know if you're gonna update them from a new era why not do something different stylistically with it um yeah i think that the the friday the 13th remake i know that some fans hate it to me it doesn't strike me as as much as much worse than any other film in this series (laughs) um some of the craft is actually pretty solid Mm -hmm. i don't think that it's one that's uh, as fun as some of the other ones um Mm -hmm. if you're kind of watching these movies just to have like a goofy fun time that the tone is a little bit more serious and a little bit more uh, a little bit less goofy um, and I think that might hurt its fun for some people I, I don't know I mean I think the remake is is a perfectly enjoyable time f- for for this franchise you know put it put it on the box art perfectly fine <laughs> well on that note what is your favorite uh, film in the Friday the 13th series Alex I gotta go with part two I just think that, that the second film in the series uh, just the formula had not gone stale yet and uh, there's still you can still sort of see the filmmakers uh, enjoying putting together these these death set pieces later entries in the series would obviously introduce new wrinkles you know Jason taking over people's bodies mm-hmm, Jason going mm-hmm. to New York <laughs> case you go to space but th- there's a certain purity to to the second film in the series which just trusts this formula that's creating for itself and i do think the kids are pretty likable in the second one yeah uh i said it when we discussed it but my favorite in the series is part six uh part four is a close second because i feel that it 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 goes above and beyond in terms of creating likable characters but part six i feel is the film in the series that really acknowledges like hey guys 
let's just have fun with this, which yeah. uh, is very appealing to me. So, and then we've talked a lot about in the podcast about the different kills and how they're sort of the reason that these movies exist. Uh, what's your favorite kill, Alex? I'm I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go with two, but they're both from the same movie. Okay. Um, there's two in the fourth movie, both uh, both Savini effects that I think are, re- are really good. Uh, so one of the things I like about the kills in the fourth one is that they're so fast. They'll just give you this flash of 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 like horrific gore and then cut away mm-hmm. but there's one where uh the, the morgue attendant gets it and jason basically uses a bone saw to like cut through his head to mm-hmm. cut through his neck and then twist his head around which is a, a neat kind of nasty little kill and then when um when our guy crispin glover gets it yeah um, that is a pretty good kill Depp as well. He's my favorite. You know, I know. <laughs> uh, he goes. Um, he goes. You know, where's the corkscrew? And then Jason puts the corkscrew in his hand, and then he just gets chopped in the head. And it's just <laughs> there, there's something so fast and precise and and, and nasty about it that yeah. uh, I, I do like that one as well. I for my favorite, I chose one from a film I actually don't really care all that much for, which is Part Seven. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways this kill actually belongs more in sort of the um, fantastic world of part six it's the scene where jason picks up a sleeping bag that uh, a girl is sleeping in and just beats it against a tree <laughs> i like it because it's so absurd yeah. and like one of the fun things to think about uh this applies to michael myers as well but especially jason Voorhees is good lord the upper body strength on that demon man <laughs> <laughs> He's got incredible upper body strength to just pick up an entire person, you know, even a even a petite woman, and just beat her against the side of a tree. It, it, it makes me just cackle in a, a way that you feel a little bit bad about. <laughs> but it's still just like, oh, wow, never seen that before. So yeah. I, I picked that for its sheer inventiveness. Uh, I actually, t- when we get to the end here, we talked about uh, the 2009 remake in Platinum Dunes. I had a great conversation with uh, Randall Colburn, uh, another writer at AV Club. He's our internet culture editor. He's been following sort of the fortunes of the franchise over the past uh, decade. And um, uh, another Friday the 13th movie is likely not coming soon because as happened a lot in the 80s, this was a big thing. Uh, I spoke with a producer recently with in an interview and he called it the go-go 80s when uh, producers of films realized that you could piecemeal sell off the rights to films and make a lot more money that way. That was mm-hmm. something that happened a lot. And Friday the 13th is kind of a um, victim of this. Uh, like we mentioned, New Line bought the rights to the characters, but not the name. And then there was talk of a uh, reboot coming in 2016 or a new sequel. And it, that one ended up getting scrapped because Victor Miller, the writer of the original film, got caught up in a very nasty lawsuit with Sean S. Cunningham about the rights to the Friday the 13th name. The characters were bought, but the name was under dispute. And that ended up getting um, solved to where Miller has domestic rights to the name Friday the 13th, but not international rights. So a lot of people would have to be on board to make another movie with Friday the 13th in the title and Jason Voorhees in the movie. So much so that it's probably not going to happen. However, this is a really fun fact. Following the success of the new Halloween film, LeBron James was in talks with uh, Blumhouse. He's a big fan of the series, 
apparently, but he was in talks with Blumhouse to produce a uh, new installment in the series, which had in the news article I read from 2018, the projected release date was fall 2020. <laughs> well, that clearly is not happening. That's not happening. Yeah. But, you know, we thought Jason was dead in the lake, too, so could still happen. <laughs> he always comes back. <laughs> yeah. He always comes back. <laughs> I, I will say that I think that the, I, I imagine those rights issues um, have something to do with what's happened with the video game, too. Mm-hmm. There was a Friday the 13th video game released a couple years ago. I think it's a lot of fun. It has um, some bugs in it, one might mm-hmm. say. It's always it's been a game that sort of uh, got, a, got a, a rough launch, you could say. But it's an asymmetrical multiplayer game where you play as either Jason or the counselors. And mm-hmm. as the counselors, you have to try to escape. Or as Jason, you have to try to kill them. And the game... Uh, not so long ago basically announced that they had to stop making new content for it because um, they weren't sure if they could release any new content for it because of rights issues. Yeah, that's a, a lot of your 80s favorites. If you're wondering why an 80s film isn't out, it's probably rights issues because of this sort of selling off of pieces that was common back in that decade. Well, that's the Friday the 13th movies, Alex. We did it. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> we, we survived. Ran, we, we ran that series. <laughs> we sure we ran that series. Yeah. And there's, uh, b- before we uh, wrap up here, I just wanted to take a moment, uh, shouted out a few different people throughout here. There's been a lot of writing about Friday the 13th, a lot of podcasting. There's that long documentary uh, called Crystal Lake Memories that's on Shudder. If you're inclined to uh, get into more detail and also I would very much recommend if you want to go into more detail on the series there's a podcast called it's called Halloweenies but uh, it's it's sort of in had a few incarnations and they run through different um, they do a more extended version of what we did today it is a monthly podcast Uh, it comes out on the Consequence of Sound Network and it's hosted by two guys here in Chicago uh, Michael Rothman and Mike Vanderbilt Uh, and they did three hours on the original film this podcast comes out once a month because it is very deeply researched and they go into a ton of detail on each of the movies they've done the first two so far but subscribe to that if you want more information than you possibly need on the friday the 13th movies (laughs) and uh also i want to just take a minute uh if you're a fan of this series uh this weekend there's something uh called final exam horror trivia which is run by michael gingold of fangoria magazine and ted geek who is a film director. He made We Are Still Here and Mohawk. Um, They do it just, they did do it as a live event, but they've started doing it online because of the COVID uh, crisis. And it's a really fun game. They run it every Friday night. It's free to join. They're doing a special Friday the 13th uh, themed edition this Friday. And I'll I'll be there to test test what I learned (laughs) doing research for this episode. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter. And they post a link a couple hours before the game goes live. All right, everybody, that's all we've got for you today. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode.